So you can have a seat. Well, good morning and welcome to Safe Haven. Happy December. It snuck up on us quick. Uh, I hope even just in the few days of December you've already eaten as many Christmas tree cakes as you can and at least watched Home Alone three times, right? But more than that, I'm thankful that you've chosen to worship today. I'm thankful that you've chosen to be here. If you're new, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Johnny Eubanks. I'm happy you're here just to kind of give you an idea of what this time looks like for us. Um, We journey through books of the Bible from beginning to end, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we find ourselves today in the book of Luke. Uh, We will be here for quite some time, but today we're in chapter 5, and so we're going to pick up there. Uh, We left off last week at verse 26. Uh, Just before we jump into the text, just kind of where we were last week, we're still in the beginning stages of Jesus' earthly ministry, and last week we looked at really two cool examples of healing and cleansing and new life, and and that of the leper and that of the, the crippled man. Some of the things that were going on, we, we compared the two, if you remember. And one thing that stood out to me was with both of these men was their approach to the Lord. They were, they were marked by humility before the Lord and almost desperation for the Lord. Okay? I think that theme is going to pop up here again today. Um, and also, we're going to see this back and forth with the Pharisees and the disciples. That is going to be consistent as we continue in Luke today. All right? So we'll have it on the text, or the text on the screen. Yep, there we go. All right, if you want to follow along. We're going to pick up at verse 27. Let's go ahead and dive in. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, well... We'll stop there. There's already a lot going on here. Uh, First, I think there's this really cool story of the calling of Levi. As we look at um, this idea of forsaking the old, embracing the new, I think we see this on display. But before we do that, before we jump into kind of the components of what's going on here, I think it would be good for us to have an understanding of who Levi was. Okay, just by the way, this is Matthew, right? The, The disciple Matthew, the gospel Matthew, the same guy. We know he was a tax collector, okay? The text tells us this much, and I think all of us could understand he probably wasn't a very popular guy just because he collected taxes, right? I think people not wanting to pay taxes has probably been uh, a common theme since they ever existed, right? In fact, you could probably see if some of you are old enough to have a teenager who had their first job, right, and they know how much they make, they know how many hours they work, they're smart, and they know everything, If you're not sure, just ask them. They'll tell you, right? Then they see their paycheck and they think, something is wrong here. I've been robbed, right? And they have their first taste of that. So we get it. We understand that. But even more so in this context, Levi was among a hated group of people, not just because he was a tax collector, but more than that, 
He was Jewish and he was a tax collector. And he wasn't collecting taxes just for the Jews. Specifically, he was collecting taxes for the Romans. Okay? And the way this worked, the Romans would set up basically a quota that the tax collector would have to meet. And then anything above that was theirs to keep. All right? So it's not a stretch to imagine that many tax collectors got crafty in thinking of many different things they could tax, take more than they should. So they were seen as Roman collaborators. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as greedy, as liars. In fact, they were viewed by the Pharisees on equal footing as murderers. And I read in some places that tax collectors weren't even allowed to go in the synagogue. They were hated this much, okay? And Jesus would have known this. This wouldn't have been a surprise to Jesus. And I think that's important because we see both uh, Jesus' approach to Levi but also the response from the Pharisees, okay? So that's who, G- or that's who Levi is and what happens? Jesus approaches him and he calls him. And I think one thing that's really important to note about this is that this call for Levi was personal, it was intentional, and here's the thing, it was initiated by Jesus. Because remember what the text said, where was Levi? He was at work, collecting taxes. And we, I mean, we don't know, he's probably collected more than he should, you know? We don't know, maybe, maybe that's unfair, maybe he was an honest tax collector. But either way, either way, he wasn't following Jesus, listening to all of his teaching, hanging on to every word trying his best, saying, I'm getting it all together. I'm following after you, Jesus. He was just at work. And Jesus saw him, and he approached him, and he sought him out. And that's his story. And honestly, believer, if you're here today, and you just got done singing and praising and responding to love, in love to Jesus, you're doing so because Jesus loved you first. It's no different than Levi. You know, as I was studying this week, I was thinking about that idea of God loving us, God pursuing us, God seeking us out. And I came across um, a chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 34. Uh, yep, got it on the screen. If you want to go back and read that, read that later this week, I think it would be really good. Because the context in Ezekiel, the message that God gave to him, was about both the sheep, the people of Israel, and the shepherds. They were, they were in a time where the shepherds were not leading well, right? They were lazy, they were selfish, they were neglecting the people. And in the context of this, the message that God gave Ezekiel was, hey, I still know who my sheep are, and I will come after them. I will find them. I will seek them. I will bring them in. I will clothe them. I will feed them. God will find his sheep. He knows who they are. He will seek them out, just like we see with Jesus and Levi. So we see with Levi's call, it was personal, it was intentional, it was initiated by Jesus. Now, what about Levi's response? Right? Jesus calls him, says, hey, Levi, follow me. Levi doesn't say, well, that sounds good. But I don't know if you've noticed, but I've got a good thing going on here. So maybe I can come see you every once in a while. Maybe I can find somebody to sublease this booth out and I can keep this gravy train rolling. That's not what he said. It's not what he did. 
The text says that Jesus told Levi, follow me. And Levi left everything. He rose and he followed him. So Levi's response was immediate and it was complete. And not only that, directly after his submission, directly after his obedience, directly after him following the Lord, what does his life look like after this? Immediately after the call, immediately after responding to the Lord, the very next thing he does is he throws a feast for Jesus. And he invites all of his friends. I think maybe another way to look at it would be his response was one of sacrifice. It was one of worship. It was one of mission. I think that's the evidence of a life that has tasted and seen the goodness of the salvation of the Lord. Right? Because in that moment he's saying, Jesus, what you're offering me is greater than anything I've ever experienced. The newness that you have will fulfill me and stain me more than anything else I've experienced. So much so, I just need you to come to my house. I want to give you the best that I have. I want to worship you. And I've got to have everybody else come meet you as well. Right? This looks a lot like what we see Paul encouraging us to be in Colossians 3. If you get a chance, go back and read, read that chapter this week. It's an encouragement for the believer that's saying, if you've already tasted and seen that Jesus is good, if you've experienced salvation, the overflow of that should be a life that looks different. It should be something greater. And your mind should now be focused and consumed on Jesus and not this world. Hold loosely to that. Let it go. Forsake the old and embrace the newness. Let us be a people that respond just like Levi complete and have our minds and our hearts completely focused on Jesus and on the things above so we see this awesome story of Levi his calling his response and we all agree it's beautiful it's amazing it's a great story and the Pharisees loved it right they hated it they hated it They hated this new life. They hated seeing the miracle of salvation. In fact, the text says that they grumbled. And they asked Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this answer that Jesus gives I think is so important because I really think this kind of lays the foundation for really everything we're talking about today. Listen to what Jesus says. He answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. You know, as I was reading this, just this portion of this text throughout the week, I kept asking this question. In this context, who are the well and who are the ones that are sick? Who are the ones actually in need of a physician and who don't? I don't really think in this moment that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, hey guys, great job. You have perfected earthly righteousness to the point that you are absolutely 
spiritually well and in no need of a physician. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think rather the point is even though there was great need from the Pharisees, they were completely blinded by their trust in themselves, their false sense of security in their own righteousness. It's almost an ignorance that they even had a need of a physician. It kind of, unfortunately, uh, reminds me of maybe how I relate in the physical sense to a physician. Um, I'll just admit to you guys, I hate going to the doctor. Um, Look, and before I say, I know we have nurses and doctors and medical professionals in this room. Please hear me say this. One, I love you, and I think you're awesome, and I am thankful that you are here to make us feel better, and I'm thankful for all you do. But for whatever reason, I'm stubborn, I'm hard-headed, I don't go to the doctor. Right? In fact, when Beth and I first got married, I remember this. We were sitting on the couch watching TV one night. She just had her hand rested on my chest like this, and she felt a knot on my chest. She said, hey, I don't think that's supposed to be there. Um, Maybe you should go to a doctor. And so, of course, I responded to her with something like, uh, yeah, I'll probably check on that this week, which was code for, I absolutely will not check on that this week, and I'm never going to the doctor, right? Fast forward eight years later, that little spot on my chest was now the size of a golf ball, and I couldn't even put a shirt on. It hurt so bad, I had to go to the doctor. But at that point, I was desperate, you know. I had to go to the doctor. And here's the, here's the thing, though. For those eight years that I didn't go to the doctor, whether I thought I was smart enough to figure it out on my own, to fix my problem, or I was stupid enough to assume that my problem would go away, the whole time there was a solution I could have had help but I was too blinded to even see I should probably just go to the doctor and I think that's exactly what we have on display here I think that's what Jesus is getting at he's not saying Pharisees you're doing great you don't need a doctor but I think what he is saying is those who understand their brokenness those who understand their great need those who don't have hopes in their own righteousness They're the ones who understand that I'm here for them and I indeed came for them and I will call them to repentance. And that is good news. Amen, church? And I think with, to this point in the story, with the idea of forsaking the old, embracing the new, looking at the call of Levi and his response, I think there's plenty there for personal application, but as we continue in the text, I think we can say with the same theme and maybe even see both personal, individual, but also maybe some corporate application, church-wide application. As we can see, continue to see this conversation unfold with the Pharisees and Jesus, I think we'll see that. Let's pick back up in the text with verse 33. So we just finished the call of Levi. The Pharisees are beginning to question Jesus about what he's doing, who he's meeting with, and they continue with questions and they say to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. 
And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So what is going on here? Uh, If you're... Not exactly sure on the initial read, that's okay, because I'm sure you're like me. In my day job, I don't do much sewing. Uh, I don't typically use um, illustrations about new garments and old garments. That's not common vernacular to me. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even really know what a wineskin looks like. So, you're not alone. But, I think we can really understand what Jesus is talking about if we go back to the initial question, right? What was the initial topic that the the Pharisees raised? It was prayer and fasting, okay? So if we keep that as kind of the lens through which we see the rest of this passage, I think it will make sense. Think about it this way. If we just boil down prayer and fasting to its just most basic idea, what is prayer? Is it not just a moment where we're saying, I just need God's presence. I just want God to hear from me, and I need to hear from Him. Regardless of what kind of prayer it is, whether it's a prayer of praising Him and exalting Him and lifting His name high, whether it's a prayer of thanksgiving for all that He's done or supplication, praying for others or a prayer of confession, regardless of what kind of prayer, the act itself is really just the time where we say, I need to be in God's presence. I want to hear from Him. And really, fasting is that. It's the exact same thing, but maybe just even more concentrated, maybe more uh, specific or intentional, right? Because in that moment, we're saying, God, I need you. I need your presence. I want to be with you in prayer so much so that I'm going to carve out specific time and maybe deny myself of something that I want so I'm not distracted and I can just be with you in your presence. If that's what prayer and fasting is, then this story about the bridegroom and the guests makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus is saying, my disciples get it. If the whole point of prayer and fasting is longing for the presence of the Lord, here they are right now with the God of the universe in flesh with them. They have this now. They're experiencing it. They get it. And the Pharisees don't. And they're missing it. And not just the illustration about the wedding guests and the bridegroom, but I think also this idea of thinking about what 
prayer and fasting is in its form. It also explains the garments and the wineskins. In the Old Testament, the examples of fasting that we see, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think there was only one occasion where God commanded his people to fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement. I think it's in Leviticus. I'm not positive. Um, you can look it up. But all the other examples we see of fasting in the Old Testament were voluntary. Okay, Whether it was a moment of needing the Lord's protection or asking the Lord for healing or seeking the Lord for guidance. In all of those moments, it was voluntary. There was this sense of desperation. There was this sense of understanding man's um, humbleness before the Lord, brokenness before the Lord, inability to fix whatever their problem was. It was voluntary. That's what we see in the Old Testament. Okay, But at this point, The traditions and the customs that the Pharisees had set up had kind of lost the heart of dependence on the Lord, seeking the Lord, and it had become this structured system, this rote practice of self-glorification, right? Creating this false sense of righteousness. So when Jesus talks about The old wineskins, when he talks about the old garment, he's talking about this structure, this tradition that the Pharisees had set up. And I think the message is, you want to talk about prayer and fasting, but what I'm bringing and what I'm offering is not just going to supplement what you have. Right? The newness that I have is not here just to tag along this world you've created that glorifies yourself. It's not going to fit. It'll never work. Instead, I think the opposite, right? The opposite of this system that the Pharisees Pharisees had set up and created, which was one that glorified self, will be a heart like we've seen in Levi, be a heart like we've seen last week with the the leper and the crippled man, which is this heart of desperation. And we kind of mentioned this earlier. I think it's the heart that we see all throughout the Psalms when we see David pray, which is interesting. Just a couple of weeks ago, Beth and I had this conversation. We were talking about David. We were talking about the Psalms. One of us asked a question, like, why do we call David a man after God's own heart? I mean, think about some really terrible things he did. I think it's because David completely understood exactly who he was before a holy God and exactly who God was as his only means of hope and restoration. I think we see that Psalm 51 when He prays, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. And then keep reading through that chapter. You get all the way to verse 17. And I love this verse. All right. Remember, we're just talking about the old and the new that Jesus was telling the the Pharisees about. Your sacrifices that are centered on self-glorification, your works... They're not good. They're not going to fill you, sustain you, save you. Psalm 51, 17. This is what the sacrifices that David says are pleasing to God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. 
God, you will not despise these. And I think that is the difference we see here, right? I think that humility, that brokenness before the Lord, I really think that's the fertile ground here for the newness that Jesus offers. And so I think the question for us, not just on the personal level of, hey, do we trust in Jesus and hope in him, not just for the forgiveness of sin and for grace, but have we embraced all that that entails as far as just a heart that's submitted to him, a life that's submitted to him in all things? I think we can ask that on the personal level. But what about the corporate level? Because this, this answer that Jesus gives, this is really, this is in a church group context. So as a church, what does that look like for us to forsake the old and embrace the newness of Jesus? Well, I think in this context, it would be We can't trust in anything other than Christ and Christ alone. We can't trust in efforts to save us. We can't put our hope in the things we can do and tradition. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, that's good. That's biblical. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. But I don't know if that's a struggle for us at at Safe Haven. Because the truth is, you can say a lot of things about us, but traditional is probably not one of them, right? Right? I just went a couple of weeks ago and picked up chicken fingers from Guthrie's for Thanksmas, all right? And when I was asked what they were for, I realized just how non-traditional we were when I told the lady it was for Thanksmas. And she said, what in the world is that? And I struggled to explain it. I don't know. We're going to eat a lot of chicken and hang out, you know? So I don't think the application for us is this long-standing hope and trust that We're going to be secure because we're doing it the same way it's always been done. But I do think it's worth asking the question, are we a church that in the effort to forsake the old and embrace the new, are we ones that look different? Right? Do we, yes, boast in Jesus for salvation. Yes, trust in His finished work and not our own. But do we also joyfully say, God, let me put aside anything that would hinder me. Let me lay aside anything that would distract me. Let me cling so loosely to the world. Are we a church that champions that, that celebrates that? You know, it made me think, years ago, I heard a pastor once pray for his kids, um, or, or he was teaching, and he was mentioning how he prayed for his kids. His kids were all basically grown-up age, and they were professing believers. And this was the prayer he prayed for them. He said, God, would you be so kind and gracious to my sons that you would give them a holy hatred for their own sin. See some eyebrows go, what? I, I can remember even in that moment thinking, hang on a second, can we even pray to hate something? Right? Is that okay? And the more I thought about it, not only do I think it's okay, I think that's the heart that David has when he pens things like Psalm 51. Because he realizes, 
Yes, I am broken and oh my goodness, the things that keep me from God's presence, the things that are not pleasing to him, not only do I not want them, but I hate them. And Lord, even in the ways where I'm weak and I don't hate them, give me a hatred for anything that is not pleasing before you. Are we a people that praise like that? Are we a people that think that? I hope we are. In fact, I was thinking of this, and I hope this is just my prayer for my heart, my prayer for your heart, my prayer for our church. I was thinking of Psalm 139, that we would ask the Lord, search us, God, search us, show us anything in us that is impure. Show us any iniquity. And would it be our joy to ask you to do that so that we can just simply come into your presence and enjoy you. We can confess sin, enjoy the beauty of forgiveness through Jesus and Jesus alone. And may we rest in your presence. Would we be a people that pray like that? Would we be a people that look like Colossians 3? That gladly push aside the distractions, the temptations, the pleasures of the world? And focus on things above? Focus on Jesus? I hope so. I hope so, church. So what do we walk away with from this text? If we think about the call of Levi, we think about this conversation about old and new, what does this mean? I'll start with the unbeliever first. If by chance you're here, and you have never trusted in Jesus. Man, today could be the day of salvation for you. Would you call out to him? Confess that you will never be enough. You will never be sufficient enough. You will never do good enough. You'll never learn enough. You'll never be smart enough. And that's okay. Would you surrender to him? Because in all ways he is. Let him be your yes. Would you taste and see the healing of the great physician? As we see in this text. Cry out to him. Confess your sin. Trust in him. Submit to him today. For the unbeliever. But for the believer. What do we walk away with? Well, I would say just like Levi, remember... That if you're here and you're responding in, in love, Jesus loved you first. And the reason I tell you that is because I promise you're probably like me. I promise your heart is probably prone to wander. You're probably prone to ride the roller coaster of life through seasons of frustration and doubt and guilt and bitterness. But Jesus is constant and he is secure and you are sealed and secure because he loved you first. That is your hope, that is your security, and that is reason to worship. Just like Levi, oh Lord, would our response be complete and without any condition? Would we gladly and joyfully say, Jesus, I want not just grace and forgiveness, but I want the fullness of all you are. I want to hold loosely to the things of this world. I want my mind to be completely centered and focused on you. I want thinking of you and 
loving you and worshiping you be the well that springs forth everything I say and do in my family, with my spouse, with my kids, in my job, whatever it is. May my mind be different. May I embrace the newness of who you are while forsaking the old. And then corporately, I would say, man, let us be a people that praise prayers like we see in Psalms. Let us be a people whose hearts are humble before the Lord. Let us be marked by our desire to come before the Lord knowing that He indeed is the only one that is good. He indeed is our only hope. And when we do that, when we approach the Lord in brokenness, when we approach the Lord in humility, here's the great news. We don't have to stay there and we don't have to be defeated there, but we can be reminded because just like we see David's prayers over and over about brokenness and humility, what do we see also along with that? We see the reminder that God alone heals and He restores and He makes new and He uplifts and He brings salvation through His Son, Jesus. Amen, church? That is good. Let us be a people that rejoices in the newness of Jesus and forsakes the old of this world. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to worship as a family. Um, Lord, I pray that we are a people that don't just see each other once a week and say hello, but we truly will be a people that laugh together and rejoice together, but even mourn together. Lord, let us be a church that longs to honor you, not just with praising you for salvation, but honor you with our lives. Let us be a people that look different. Let us be a people that embrace the fullness of uh, what you offer while holding loosely to the world. Would you do that for us, God? Would you give us a heart that longs just for your presence and nothing else? Nothing else that distracts or gets in the way. God, in all of that, I pray the heartbeat behind all of that will be that our great desire is to see Jesus, your name lifted high and no one else's. If nothing else, let that be our heartbeat. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, for we hope in him, we trust in him, and now we respond in worship in him.